Here we go. You're listening to Law and Gospel on this Monday, November the 23rd in the year of our Lord 2020. I'm Pastor Tom Baker. And on Mondays, we examine a reading from the following Sunday, which is the first Sunday in Advent. First Sunday in Advent, the readings are from Isaiah 64, 1 Corinthians 1, and Mark 11. We're going to examine Isaiah 64. And and you may say, now, wait a minute, it's the first Sunday in Advent, which talks about the coming of the Lord, and that doesn't occur until the New Testament when Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So why are you using an Old Testament text for the first Sunday in Advent? Well, let's start reading it, and you'll discover why. Remember, the New Testament often fulfills what the Old Testament is predicting. Isaiah 64 Verse 1, oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Well, there we have it, the very first verse, that God would come down. And that's what Advent is about, about his coming. During the Advent season, we talk about his various comings, number one, as a babe in the Bethlehem stable, and number two, he's coming into your heart through faith, and number three, he's going to be coming on the last day. But we often forget that Jesus is mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament books, He is often referred to as the angel of the Lord. Uh, For example, when Moses at Mount Sinai is in front of a burning bush, God is not a burning bush, as I was sharing with an adult instruction class yesterday, but he is in with and under the burning bush. And that's why Moses took off his shoes. And it says the angel of the Lord tells him, that his name is Yahweh. I am who I am. So that's the name also of Jesus, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. Three persons, one God. So Isaiah is praying that God would rend the heavens and come down. And do we see that? We see that in the baptism of Jesus, where from the heavens, the Father says, this is my beloved Son. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And that these are reminders of what happened also in the Old Testament, that the mountains might quake at your presence. Simply read the book of Exodus. When Moses goes up on the mountain and it's quaking, thundering, and the people are very afraid. In fact, if anybody touches the mountain, human being or animal, they would die. So Isaiah is 
indicating that God needs to come down. Why? Verse 2 gives the reason. As when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil to make your your name known to your adversaries and that the nations might tremble at your presence. And did the nations tremble? Yes. In the last readings, for example, during the season of Pentecost, it talked about that God was coming down to destroy uh, rulers and principalities and powers, and, and the last thing to be destroyed would be death. That's why God came down. Verse 3, when you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. A reminder again of what happened on Mount Sinai. And there was an awesome things that the disciples had not been looking for that did occur with the transfiguration of Jesus. They're up on a mountain, and he's transfigured into a glorious being. They did not expect that. In fact, Jesus even tells them, don't tell anybody what you saw until after the resurrection, until the Holy Spirit came to them and gave them proper understanding that Jesus indeed was not only the Christ, but also the Messiah. Because when Peter answered the question from Jesus, who do men say that I am? He said, you are the Christ. And then Jesus said, blessed are you. You didn't think of that on your own, Peter, but the Father gave that to you. But do not tell anyone about that. Now, why would Jesus be saying, don't tell anyone that he is the Christ? That is not a quotation you would want on your church door. No. But why did he say that? Well, he was in a Gentile area when he asked that question. And it was Caesarea Philippi, an area that was not only a Gentile area, but Caesar Augustus had had a temple built to him, and people considered him to be God, to be the anointed one. So Jesus was making a very clear point, don't tell anyone at this time that I am the Christ because they will want to kill me because they believe Caesar Augustus is the anointed one, the king. At any rate, these who do not believe in him, they will tremble at his presence because Jesus is doing awesome things that they did not look for. I mean, people were quaking at the presence when Jesus did miracles. He healed people who were demon-possessed. He healed people who were blind, who were lame, who were deaf. He even raised people from the dead, like Lazarus. This is all found in Isaiah 64. Jesus doing awesome things that the people had not been 
looking for. And of course, the most awesome thing he did on Palm Sunday, thinking him to be the Christ, and at that time, the idea of Christ was one who would come and destroy the nations, particularly in Jerusalem. Therefore, they thought Jesus would come and get rid of the Romans. But he did not. He came instead and was crucified. That was an awesome thing. They were not looking forward to that. They did not expect that. Even though Jesus said he would be killed in Jerusalem and then rise, what did the disciples do? They all fled from him at the Garden of Gethsemane. And then, except for John, none of them were at the crucifixion. They were hiding in an upper room. And when Jesus came into that upper room on Easter Sunday, he didn't say to them, now, thanks a lot, guys. You know, I was having trouble in the Garden of Gethsemane and you all fled. No, there was no criticism. Instead, his first words to the disciples, peace be with you. And that peace was between them and God the Father. The dividing wall of hostility had been broken down. So that was an awesome thing. Verse 4, from of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear, no eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. Now, that reminds me of, well, the Israelites were at the Red Sea and the Egyptians were trying to get to them. God had made a divide between them with a pillar of fire by night and a cloud during the day. And then he opened up the wait, the Red Sea as the people were waiting for him. And nobody had seen a God like this. In, in fact, you cannot find a religion outside of Christianity that even comes close to what the Christian doctrine teaches, that God did something to save you. No, in every other religion, God tells you what you are to do. We made that point in adult instruction yesterday where we were saying that the law is do this and you will live, and nobody can do it. So God reveals the gospel where people are saved not by what they do, but by what they believe, namely the promises of Jesus Christ. And you cannot understand the promises. You can only have them revealed to you. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, you believe that which you cannot understand. For example, when Christians go to the Lord's Supper, who understands how in, with, and under the bread and the wine is the body and blood of Christ? We don't understand it. There are some churches that attempt to understand it, like the Roman Catholic Church was teaching transubstantiation, where the substance of the bread and the wine was exchanged for the body and blood of Christ. But that's not found in the Bible. 
And that's a philosophical theory anyway. So we don't understand how, when we go to the Lord's Supper, we're receiving the body and blood of Christ, but we believe that we are, because that's his promise. Take and eat, this is my body given for you. Take and drink, this is my blood shed for the remission of your sins. We believe that which doesn't make any sense at all. It's incomprehensible to reason. That's why reason cannot be a means of grace. It cannot even prepare a person in order to become a Christian. The, the Bible is very reasonable using its own logic, but it is against common sense. It's against reason. So, verse 5, you meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Now, joyfully works righteousness? How does that come about? It's the fulfillment of the New Testament. In the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus goes to the cross with joy. In, in fact, it, it's kind of the same word used in the parable of the lost sheep, that he finds the lost sheep, puts it on his shoulders, which no shepherd would do. I mean, these are stinking big sheep, and he carries it through the wilderness home. That's what he did to you. You were lost. You were born in sin. And he found you through the preaching of the word, through holy baptism. And therefore, he worked righteousness by taking upon himself your sins on the cross and paying the punishment, even receiving a figment of hell. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he was forsaken because he was the biggest sinner in the world, carrying your sins to the cross. So those who remember Jesus in his ways reminds us of the Passover because they celebrated it, Israel did, every year to remember how God saved them through the blood of a lamb. And therefore, we celebrate that in worship services as we receive the very body and blood of Christ, the Lamb of God, who came to take away the sins of the world. So verse 5 continues, giving an understanding of why Jesus Christ was necessary. Behold, you were angry and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time. And shall we be saved? Boy, Isaiah is talking about what we often talk about in Lutheran theology, that you are at the same time a sinner and at the same time righteous in the sight of God. 100% sinner, 100% righteous. Verse 6, we have all become like one 
who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. What's Isaiah talking about? When Jesus spoke to the unbelieving Pharisees, they did righteous deeds in the sense of from a human point of view. They took care of widows, and they did other what seemed like good works. Yet Jesus regarded them as polluted because they did not do them with the proper motivation. They did not have faith in the true God. In fact, the God they had, they boasted to him, boy, we're sure happy we're not like those tax collectors. That's why we are saved. No. Verse 6 continues. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Take us away from what? Take us away from faith in the true God. The God that we are to remember who joyfully works righteousness. In fact, you are righteous because you're wearing the robe of Christ's righteousness. That's why you're going to heaven. Your own works often are unclean, and your righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. That was a big teaching of Martin Luther, that it's not just outward sin that was polluted, but because the motivation for even righteous deeds was something we tried to boast about, they became polluted, and we, like a leaf, faded away. Verse 7, there is one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. If that is not a wonderful summary of the preaching of the law. Remember when Moses went up on Mount Sinai, he did not see the face of God. He only saw the backside. Nobody can call upon his name because his face is hidden from us. That's the importance of the many prophecies in the Old Testament talking about the coming of Jesus as the Savior, because now the disciples saw God face to face in the person of Jesus Christ, and they heard what God's will was, namely that Jesus had come to destroy the works of the devil and therefore to destroy death. Death was the last to be destroyed. For those who trust in Jesus, heaven is their home. Verse 8, But now, O Lord, you are our Father. Now, I remember the night of the resurrection when Jesus said to the disciples, Peace be with you. That was a way of saying, that God the Father is now with you. As I said, there's no longer a dividing wall of hostility between you because of your sins, because your sins have been declared forgiven. 
And what does that mean? It means that you are no longer to be held accountable for your sins. Jesus was held accountable for your sins. Therefore, God the Father is your Lord. That's even found in the Old Testament at the beginning of the commandments. I am the Lord your God. And how do you know that? Because I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And he says that to you today who believe in Christ. I am the Lord your God because I died on the cross for you. Now, the next part of verse 8 really shows that God is the one that gets all the credit for our salvation. He says, we are the clay. You are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Talk about a wonderful teaching of the Reformation that we are saved by grace, through faith, not on account of our works, lest anybody should boast. Jesus says, you did not choose me, I chose you. There's, there's no room here for any works to make God begin to love you more and save you. There's no room here for any kind of decision. And that's why God chooses some and not others. No, all that is out the door because God is the potter. We are the clay. And, and that's found so much in the reading from last week, the end of the church here, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. The sheep and the goats often do the same good works outwardly, like not only sheep, but also goats visit people in prison, give drink to the thirsty, food to the hungry. But the difference is the goats don't do it, understanding that I'm doing it to the least of these, the brothers of Jesus Christ. Whereas the goats don't have the motivation that the sheep have. And therefore the work of the goats is always out of self-interest in contrast to the sheep that do them out of the interest of Jesus Christ. That's why verse 8 is so important, that we're clay. You are our potter. Paul mentions that also in the epistles in trying to make the point that our salvation is totally the work of Jesus Christ. So verse 9, Remember, this is Isaiah chapter 64, Old Testament, many, many years before Jesus came at Advent. Verse 9, be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are all your people. And of course, Isaiah is talking about those who remember that Jesus will come in order to give us his righteousness. I mean, that's right in the text. And therefore, God should not be so angry and remember not our iniquity forever. Now, if that isn't kind of a quote from Jeremiah repeated in Hebrews, 
in the new covenant, God will no longer remember your sins and he will forgive your iniquity. What does it mean if he would remember your sins? It means that you would receive the punishment rather than the wonderful gift of the forgiveness of sins. People who go to hell are those who prefer to pay for their own sins rather than have God take care of them. What a wonderful text Isaiah 64 is for Advent because Isaiah, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is inspired to look forward to the coming of the Messiah, the coming of the Christ. So this idea of coming is really important for the season of Advent. And that's why the hymn that I, Tom Baker, and Mark Smith will be examining tomorrow, Savior of the Nations, come. And we'll discuss that. Till then, God bless you. Listen to Law & Gospel each weekday morning at 9.30 on KFUO. For a tax-deductible gift to Law & Gospel, please make your check payable to Concordia Mission Society and mail it to Tom Baker, P.O. Box 28910, St. Louis, Missouri, 63132. To give online, visit lawandgospel101.com or call toll-free 1-877-267-1962. Views and opinions expressed on Worldwide KFUO may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. If you'd like to comment on programs or topics heard on Worldwide KFUO, write us at KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. You can also leave a question or comment on our comment line at 314-996-1542. We are the messenger of good news, Worldwide KFUO.